Can you get me into your husband's party? Not keep my marriage. Look, I got a fine figure on the dance floor. At least I would if your husband didn't have my legs broken. So, why do they call you action? Are you okay? Go to the police station. I have to catch a cab. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since the 1990s. You can read all of my written work. Quipster.net is where to go, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you, speaking of the 1990s, I do another podcast that covers more specifically films of the 1990s, including newer films that were somehow sequels in some form or fashion to those films of the 90s. It's called To the 90s and Beyond. You can find the link to that at my website, quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into a film called Action Jackson, and it's going to be the first of a three-part series looking at films from the 1980s in which cops get framed for murder. There are probably more than three that qualify, but I'm just going to stick to three for now, including Action Jackson which stars Carl Weathers. It's an R-rated film. It does have strong violence, some nudity, drug content and language. The runtime is an hour and 36 minutes. In addition to Weathers, we also have Craig T. Nelson, Vanity, Sharon Stone, and Bill Duke. A whole lot of other supporting players that are very well-known character actors in this film as well. Craig R. Baxley is the director of the screenplay credited to Robert Renault. Now, the basic setup for Action Jackson... We have Carl Weathers starring as this Harvard-educated Detroit cop named Jericho Jackson. He's earned the nickname Action Jackson for sometimes going above and beyond the call of duty, crossing the line in roughhousing his perps. The police captain, played by Bill Duke, he demotes Jackson from lieutenant to basically this desk jockey sergeant. He's no longer allowed to carry a gun. He went too far while he was taking down the son of this slimy car company tycoon called Peter Delaplane, played by Craig T. Nelson. Now, Jackson does suspect that Delaplane is up to no good. He is probably the main player behind this series of murders of auto union officials in town, and he aims to take him down, although to do that, that would mean risking his law enforcement career and possibly also his life in order to do it. There's a lot more to the story than that, but I'll get into some of those details as I get into the body of this retrospective review. Now, the idea for Action Jackson as a movie, it emerged sometime during the production of the film Predator, the Arnold Schwarzenegger actioner that also included Carl Weathers. As they were filming in Mexico, many of the locals were fans of the Rocky series of films, and they would constantly hound Predator co-star Carl Weathers for autographs, to take pictures with them. And taking notice of this popularity in Mexico was Predator's producer, Joel Silver. Silver became very good friends with Weathers. He was there on the set pretty much every day. And they had a lot of conversations, things they had in common, specifically movies that they loved. And that stemmed from their mutual admiration specifically for black exploitation flicks from the 1970s. Now, Joel Silver, like many producers in the 1980s, were becoming aware that black audiences 
movie-going audiences, they comprised a substantial percentage of consumers of action flicks. And Silver felt that not only were black action heroes ready to go mainstream, as evidenced by the two Beverly Hills Cops films that were the top money earners of their respective years, but he also judged that Weathers himself had breakout leading man potential, and so he suggested to Weathers that they should concoct a movie project together after they complete Predator. Now, Weathers definitely was somebody who was looking forward to his career in acting, and he especially thought it would be great to become somebody who was involved in his own franchise. Long before he ever got involved in the the series of Rocky films, Weathers had majored in theater arts at San Diego State University. He was there on a football scholarship, but acting had been his passion ever since he appeared in this fifth grade elementary school performance during his childhood growing up in New Orleans. Now, sports was another passion, but it was mostly, he thought, just a way to attract girls. He really wasn't getting the ladies, so to speak, being in theater. But after college, Weathers did pursue sports as a career, kind of a short-lived one. He played linebacker for the Oakland Raiders for a couple of years, and then he moved over, moved up, I should say, to the Canadian Football League, and he played there for the BC Lions, the British Columbia Lions. But he never gave up his passion for acting because he performed in stage plays in San Francisco during off-seasons. Now, although he'd rather do Shakespeare, the 40-year-old Weathers, he called his movie career kind of his goofy period in terms of acting. He was going to go full bore into these dumb action vehicles. He actually called them not dumb action vehicles. He called them muscle comedies. Speeding cars, flipping in the air, men shooting cannons, those are the things that actually sell movie tickets these days. Adaptations of The Sun Also Rises or Moliere do not. So Weathers was all about giving audiences what they wanted. He just really wanted to act and and be successful at it. So if it meant having his own franchise in the action field, these muscle comedies, so much the better for him. Now, Weathers tried to brainstorm for ideas of what he could do as a movie to work with Joel Silver. He was in his hotel room at the end of each day's shoot, just thinking what would be a great idea for a movie. And for a few days, the only really good idea that he could think of was just the name of a character. He thought that the first name, Jericho, would be a great name for an action star. He didn't know what to do after that, though. But a breakthrough did occur when one of Predator's Australian electricians, he started bragging to Weathers during their off time about his personal prowess with women. And in relating one particularly saucy escapade, the electrician said the phrase, and I was in like action Jackson. Now this name clicked in Weathers' mind. Jericho, action, Jackson, That would be an amazing character name, and the name Action Jackson, that would be a perfect movie title. Now, in addition to Silver being on the set, Weathers also became friends with Predator co-star Shane Black. Now, Black also happened to be a screenwriter. He's, He's actually been very successful at being a screenwriter. If you know your action films, you definitely know the name Shane Black. So Black showed Weathers his most recently sold screenplay for a movie called Lethal Weapon, He sold it to Warner Brothers recently for a decent sum for somebody who had never sold anything before. Weathers happened to absolutely love 
the screenplay to Lethal Weapon, he read it in its entirety the first night he had it. And after he read it, he thought, well, you know, this actually was the kind of movie he wanted to make, a funny, action-packed cop thriller that probably was going to be a good fit for Action Jackson. So knowing this, Black loaned Weathers some of his inspirations for cop thrillers, his favorite novels by this crime thriller author named John D. MacDonald. And Weathers read these books that Black gave him, and he got hooked, and he read them all. Weathers personally identified with McDonald's most well-known character named Travis McGee, because McGee, like Weathers, was a very tall, well-built, former pro football player. He was also very highly intelligent, as well as popular, yet very respectful with the ladies. Weathers thought Jackson would be in the same mold, not only as McGee, but also himself. He felt that Jackson, reflecting his own personality, would naturally breathe a lot of humanity into the role because he could just portray himself and it would just seem very three-dimensional. He wanted audiences to admire Jackson for his integrity, not his ability to cause destruction, though, unlike those killing machines that were out in theaters. So Weathers came up with Jackson's background. He borrowed from some of the heroes of his favorite books and some of those westerns he watched as a kid where he admired those heroes and what they represented. He thought that Jackson should be well-educated. He should be emotionally sensitive, cerebral, not a chauvinist. He should be morally upright and also very funny. He was not going to be somebody who's just going to blow up all opposition. So Weathers started writing down all of these ideas of what he wanted to put not only in this character, but just some story notes for some things that might be good to put into the movie. He thought, you know, the opening action scene should be set in San Jose, California. He's very familiar with the Bay Area. Action Jackson would find something illegal in this cannery there. Weathers also envisioned that one of the baddies, assassins, would moonlight as a Benihana chef by day. And our intro to that assassin would show him making a kill during one of his cooking sessions. There were a lot of other ideas thrown in there, but eventually, as a package Joel Silver sold it to 20th Century Fox, that was Predator Studio. But there was an early hurdle after the sale. Action Jackson happened to be the name of this action hero toy line from the early 1970s, probably also the inspiration for the I was in like Action Jackson line from the Australian electrician. So they needed to obtain the rights from Mego Toys to use the title. But after all of this was resolved, they did get the green light to hire a writer. They looked preferably for somebody inexpensive. Shane Black would have been a natural choice, but he was definitely getting busy and it was much more expensive. So he recommended Robert Renault. Renault was an up-and-coming writer. He was part of this live-and-work frat house in West Los Angeles called the, the Paddo Guys. The Pad was a group of about 12 Greenhorn screenwriters and former UCLA film student friends who had not really sold anything yet. A group that Shane Black was a part of, and that's how he knew Renault. Renault had recently assisted Black, in fact, by writing new scenes for Lethal Weapon after director Richard Donner wanted some mid-production story changes, although a lot of Renault's work would later get replaced by additional rewrites from Jeffrey Bohm. Now, Silver called Renault. He called him to tell him all of the key elements that he wanted put into the script for Action Jackson, namely the hero was going to be called Jericho Jackson, and he would be portrayed by Carl Weathers. So to write the part specifically for him, 
It would be set in Detroit due to its gritty urban setting, and the plot should involve the Detroit auto unions. Silver also wanted there to be a love interest at some point for Jackson, and specifically, that love interest would be like an R&B singer in the mold of Janet Jackson. Uh, for inspiration for what to do for his plot, Renault looked to the James Bond series in particular. He was a big fan of the James Bond films. So the, he thought that the nemesis for Action Jackson would be colorful, wealthy, this villain named Delaplane. Delaplane would be patterned after the fallen from grace automaker John DeLorean, at least in his looks and some of his attitude, not necessarily his bio. Now for kind of Bond girls, Renault envisioned Delaplane would have a beautiful wife who would be involved in the plot somehow, but also a sexy mistress who would try to seduce and then ally with Jackson. And that would be the R&B singer. Silver approved Renault's outline and then commissioned him to proceed with the script. But unfortunately, partway through its writing, 20th Century Fox put the project into turnaround. Silver had to shop it around again, and he got close to a deal with MGM, but they too pulled out after they decided to put all their effort into picking up A Fish Called Wanda as their next project. After that, Silver had even worse luck with all of the other big studios, but eventually he did strike Pater with a smaller studio, Lorimar, which was primarily at that time a television production company, but they happened to be hungry for film projects because they were trying to expand their fledgling film division. Lorimar's film chair, Bernie Brillstein, he took a liking to Weathers and he consented to make the picture if they could do it on a very modest budget and an expedited schedule. Now, Weathers was a bit surprised in the end when he saw the script to learn that Renault's story really bore absolutely no relation to his original outline of story ideas, except for the main character's name and personality and occupation. But he did trust Joel Silver knew better than he did how to sell projects, and he was very amenable to the Detroit setting because his girlfriend of 18 months, Elaine K. Thompson, who happened to be a production associate on Predator and actually would be on Action Jackson as well, she happened to be from the Detroit area. Now, technically, Weathers was married to Rona Unsell, who was this, this owner of this body wrap toning salon in Fort Worth, Texas called Tomorrow's Body. But he and Ansel were separated at the time. Weathers, in fact, in public told everybody that he was divorced, although that didn't officially happen until 2006. Now, for the director, Lorimar suggested Thomas J. Wright. Wright was an African-American director. He also recently directed several episodes for Lorimar's telepictures division on Max Headroom. And Lorimar argued that they preferred a TV director for Action Jackson because TV directors knew how to film with low budgets and on tight schedules. They kept things moving along. So Silver, knowing this, convinced them instead to hire Craig R. Baxley. Baxley also had TV direction experience. He directed several episodes of TV's The A-Team. And Baxley also happened to be the stunt coordinator on Predator, and Silver was particularly impressed with how Baxley handled second unit direction for Predator, especially the assault on the village that is a key component in that film. Now, Baxley was offered this. He was amazed by this opportunity to direct his first 
feature film, and he immediately began envisioning Detroit environments as kind of like a stunt playground through which cars were going to smash through walls or people busting through all kinds of panes of glass. Now, Renault wrote the heavy of Action Jackson, Peter Delaplane. That part was, he envisioned going to go to this older actor, very similar to the James Bond series, maybe somebody like James Coburn or Christopher Plummer, somebody very formidable. But Joel Silver wanted instead a, a Ben Gazzara type, maybe younger, more virile than those particular actors. Now, Silver's top choice, he thought, would be Sam Elliott. They pursued Elliot, but Elliot was not available, but he did agree that he would appear for the Joel Silver-produced film called Roadhouse the following year. Now, Silver contemplated at that point, maybe they should go for more prestigious actors, but he suggested maybe Peter Coyote for Delaplane, Kathy Tyson to play Delaplane's singer mistress, Sidney Ash. Coincidentally, Tyson happened to be one of the actresses that Renault envisioned when he was writing that part. However, she wasn't called Sydney Ash at that time. She was called Ashley Benson in Renault's script, but uh, it was later changed to Sydney Ash because Ashley Benson sounded a little too much like Action Jackson, so they wanted to avoid any confusion. Craig T. Nelson did ultimately accept the, the Peter Delaplane role because he wanted to change his image from the wholesome fatherly type in the Poltergeist films. And playing the heavy here also meant that he could play the part as broadly as he wanted and have a lot of fun with it. He would have all of the best lines. Sharon Stone would sign on to play Della Plain's long-suffering wife. This was not the kind of movie that she really wanted to make, but she needed a paycheck. And she liked working with Nelson in particular. She thought that uh, he was the saving grace for the film experience for her. A wonderful and sweet man, unlike his character in almost every way. Now, Vanity, whose real name... Denise Matthews. She accepted the Sydney Ash role in the end. She felt that she could relate to this character specifically in several ways because not only was she a singer, but she was also influenced by powerful men. She was a, a protege of Prince at one time. And she also more recently, unfortunately, had a history of drug abuse. But instead of heroin, which was Sydney Ash's drug of choice, Vanity was fighting her own three year battle with a nasty cocaine crack addiction. The one thing that Vanity was trying to get away from was doing nude scenes. She didn't want to continuously use her body to score roles, and she had a nude scene slated for Action Jackson. She even broke down crying to try to get out of it, but her manager said that if she did not do the nude scene, they weren't going to put her in the film. So she did perform it under a bit of duress. She was still very much abusing drugs at the time, but she was very secretive about those drugs. She never used it when she had to work. She didn't tell anybody. She never showed it to anybody. She only would use it when she would go back to her hotel alone at night. Because she was very professional and she worked very hard on the set, none of them even suspected that she had this drug abuse problem. She was still a very functioning addict until she talked about it in interviews afterward and surprised everybody. Weathers thought Vanity had the memory of an elephant. He was surprised to know that she was a crack addict. She knew all of her lines and she knew all of his, in fact. She was always prepared. Now, playing an addict did cause Vanity to reflect on her own drug issues here. So after the shoot ended, 
she decided she was going to check into St. John's Hospital in Los Angeles for three months of rehab. She publicly stated that her role was a blessing in disguise, and she, even though she struggled with her own addiction problems, she is proud that younger people who see Action Jackson would get this message that they can succeed without using drugs. She didn't want to jinx all of this, though, by talking fully about her drug problems until she was clean for a full year. Unfortunately, though, if you know your history of Denise Matthews, 30 days after her release from the hospital, she did return to using drugs. Although she did get clean sometime later, she found religion and became a born-again Christian, an evangelist, she called herself, sometime after that. Although she would eventually die from kidney failure due to the drugs that she overindulged in for these years, unfortunately. Now, Vanity's fiancé at the time, Motley Crue's bassist, Nikki Six, did break up with her during the production. Vanity once joked that uh, when she married Nikki Six, she would be known again as Vanity Six, which was the, the name that her her band was called when she was with Prince. However, the relationship with Nikki Six was difficult. They were always apart. And to some extent, due to the drugs specifically, Vanity wasn't always present even when they were together, at least according to Six. Six said they were both misfits whose only common interest really was the drugs that they both abused. He said that Vanity was gorgeous in public, but a complete mess in private. She would often get strung out for days, not attending to her personal hygiene. She was also very manipulative when she was in a relationship, very jealous. She played a lot of mind games. In the end, Nikki Six did leave Vanity because he thought she was an absolute train wreck, a head case, an attention whore, an embarrassment around others, and a ceaseless thorn in his side, as well as his bandmates. Getting back to the film, one particular anecdote regarding Vanity was this one scene. The director, Baxter, didn't think that the moment when Peter Delaplane slaps Sidney across the face, he didn't think it looked real. There was a lot of, there's too much distance between his hand and Vanity's face. So he asked Vanity if she would actually take the hit, take the slap. She consented. She wasn't thrilled about it, but as long as it wasn't too hard. And Nelson assured her that he was very experienced doing this. He's done it before. He would come as close as he could, but he would not actually strike her. But when he actually did go to do it, he actually did make impact and it knocked her clear back onto the bed. But Nelson was professional enough to not lose character. He continued acting through this And he specifically did that so they wouldn't have to go through it again. As bad as that was, it was better than it was for Dennis Hayden, who plays Delaplane's henchman Shaker. There was a scene in which Hayden actually gets kicked in the groin very hard by Carl Weathers doing this fight sequence. Even though there was actual contact there, Baxley still asked them to do another take because he felt it did not look real enough. But Hayden, he was doubled over in pain. He said that if it was any more real, he was going to cry. The smaller roles in Action Jackson include many actors who were known for being in other Joel Silver-produced films like Predator. Obviously, you have Carl Weathers. But Bill Duke and Sonny Lanham also happen to be in Predator. And as well as Die Hard, which was basically shot the same year, Dennis Hayden, Al Leong, uh, Devorah White, Mary Ellen Trainer, and Robert Davi are also in Die Hard. Now, for the smart-alecky cop called Kornblau, there's actually two cops there that are are kind of funny comic relief characters, patrol cops in the film. Silver wanted Bill Paxton specifically for that role. He had appeared in 
the Joel Silver production Weird Science, but Paxton was unavailable. Michael Bowen and Robert Nepper also auditioned for it, but eventually it went to Back to the Future's Thomas F. Wilson. Although Lorimar's budget was a pretty low $7 million initially, the production manager, after reading the script, said that if they went by everything that was in the script, it would probably cost 12 to $15 million and they should probably do a major revision of the script. But Silver said there was absolutely no time. He ordered them to shoot the script as is and to let him handle trying to get more money that they needed. Silver continuously would go back and beg Bernie Brillstein for additional money. He felt he needed at least $15 million, but he only got in the end about $10 million. So they were shooting a film that was meant for a higher budget at a much lower budget, Weathers did agree to help out a little bit. He would defer his salary in exchange for a healthy profit percentage. Although still for some of the film, they had to be very creative in how they shot things. For instance, in one scene, they needed to blow up a yacht. However, there wasn't enough money to get a real yacht and then blow it up. So they decided they would create this life-size picture of a yacht. They would mount it on this wooden billboard that would be placed on top of a barge on the water. And they would blow that up instead. They were actually very pleased by how it came out in the film. Now, some exteriors were shot in New York, but a lot of the rest of the film was moved to Los Angeles, primarily for budgetary reasons. They didn't want to have to pay for all of the lodging and travel for this large cast and crew. Renault originally meant for Jackson's ex-boxer friend, Kid Sable, to have this big scene driving a car through a house. But one of the uh, Lorimar execs suggested that, well, if they wanted to put that in the film, that should probably be the climax of the film. The climax in Delaplane's mansion and Action Jackson was going to be the driver. There was another big action sequence, a big car chase across a golf course that was also cut, a fist fight in a decaying tenement building in Detroit where Jackson and Delaplane's thugs would crash through walls and dilapidated walls and rotting floors. You know, these scenes were in the original script, but they had to be nixed because of those budgetary reasons. And they also thought that... uh, Filming in a real location in a real uh, broken down tenement was going to be just too much of a safety issue. So they decided to sidestep that altogether. Now, this was a very physical performance for Carl Weathers. He called Action Jackson the toughest project that he'd ever done, including all of those Rocky films and Predator. He did nearly all of his own stunts for Action Jackson, although he did pass on such things as leaping over this oncoming taxi that was coming at him at 40 miles per hour. But in addition to the stunts, he also was involved in almost every step of the production. He offered creative decisions, including wardrobe and hair and makeup choices. And he also sat in through a lot of the post-production process, including the editing of the film. Baxley, as a director, this was his first feature film. He happened to be very well-liked by the cast and the crew. Everybody thought he was a very nice guy. He was very friendly. He was very even-tempered. They found working for him very refreshing. Baxley and Weathers, in fact, became very good friends during the production of this film and are still friends to this day. After the studio screening, Joel Silver did ask for additional scenes because he thought that Jackson came across as not very likable or not likable enough. So they added a few new scenes, including one where Jackson has a conversation back and forth with this valet played by Devorah White, the actor who would play Argyle in Die Hard. Additional insert shots were placed at various intervals during the editing phase to have payoff moments and some additional one-liners just 
bicep of humor as well as the irony in the film. They also made some changes to the ending. The ending in the script where Sydney visits Jackson in the hospital, that was shot, but then later they did replace it with one where they actually instead meet in Delaplane's house, not the hospital, and that's where Sydney would reveal that she was off heroin. And that would nix the intended epilogue scene for the film where they would reconnect after she had gone off of it for several days. Now, the score is credited to jazz legend Herbie Hancock with contributions by Michael Kamen. Now, Kamen was actually the composer for Action Jackson. But Herbie Hancock did come in for a short period. He was brought in by Silver for some contributions. And as part of the deal, Hancock was going to get top billing for the score even though reportedly Hancock only spent maybe a total of 50 minutes in all recording mostly some improvisational work on a piano. The only thing that Baxley says that they used was this snippet of some of his noodling where he emulated fellow jazzman Don Ellis's score from The French Connection, and they decided to use that in one of the car chase sequences in the film. Jesse Johnson, the former guitarist for Prince's protege group, The Time, he produced the two songs that Vanity sings during the movie, Undress and Far Away Eyes. Paula Abdul came in. She choreographed Vanity's dancing during her musical performances in this film, although Abdul did ruffle Baxley and the rest of the crew's feathers by making a lot of demands coming in, especially on where to place the cameras even. like they, She basically tried to call the whole show when they were trying to shoot these uh, like mini music videos within the course of the film. Vanity and Jesse Johnson intended, after this film was done, to work on a full album. She was going to sign with A&M Records, which was Jesse's label at the time, but that album did not materialize. She also was going to work at some point with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and maybe even Prince for a full album. It was going to be called Cherry Bomb or something like that. And that never developed. She never did come out with another full album, unfortunately. The Pointer Sisters do contribute the song that is used over the opening credits called He Turned Me Out. They also released it as a single. The Pointers just by happenstance. They weren't really chosen because they were also on the Beverly Hills Cop soundtracks, but they happened to be friends with the stunt coordinator of Action Jackson from their days when they appeared in Car Wash together. They were in the area filming this different music video, and they happened to stop by the set, and Baxley started talking to the Pointer Sisters, and after about 15 minutes, he actually got an agreement from them to provide a song for the soundtrack. It was not an original song meant for Action Jackson. It actually was from their upcoming album that was released in 1988 called Serious Slammin'. Weathers and Vanity did happen to appear in the music video for He Turned Me Out, which did hit the top 40. And in the video, Vanity hustles Weathers in a pool hall. They're shooting pool together. To further promote the film, Carl Weathers went on a three-week tour of public appearances to about a dozen cities using Lorimar's corporate jet. He also hosted the January 30th, 1988 episode of Saturday Night Live. Despite her qualms about her nude scene in the film, Vanity did show up to the makeup trailer, usually completely naked. So a lot of the, the cast and crew were used to seeing her naked on the set. She also did a nude spread for the April 1988 issue of Playboy, primarily though, because Playboy was intending on publishing some 10-year-old pictures of Vanity that they had obtained, but she didn't want those pictures to be released, so Playboy agreed to destroy those pictures in exchange for her coming in and doing a new pictorial. 
Weathers and Vanity also went to the Cannes Film Festival in France in May of 1988 for interviews to try to sell the film to foreign markets. In the end, Action Jackson performed respectably. It debuted at number three at the U.S. box office in the middle of February, and it stayed there in the top ten for about a month or so. It earned a decent $20 million domestically, but it also did solid numbers internationally, especially in Germany. In fact, it did so well in Germany that they repackaged Weathers' next film, this wholly unrelated film from 1990, a made-for-TV movie called Dangerous Passion, but it was released in theaters in Germany as Action Jackson 2, despite it being completely different in every way, save for the fact that it starred Carl Weathers. Where Action Jackson did make a lot of its money, though, was when it was released on home video. It was uh, very popular with home video rentals. People would watch it over and over again. It, It was probably even more profitable on home video than it ever was theatrically. Some people estimate it made another $45 million off of sales and rentals once it hit home video. Action Jackson happened to be the first and only film from Lorimar that ever broke into the the top 10 in terms of weekly box office. So, unfortunately, Lorimar didn't last too much after that. Weathers insists that the only thing that really kept Action Jackson from doing higher box office numbers was that they really needed a little bit more time to develop the screenplay before they started filming. Weathers also says that this is one of those movies he wishes he did have another chance at because he felt that it just it was on the verge of being a really a much better movie, but they had to start filming in a hurry because there was a director's guild strike that was imminent and studios, all of the studios, were rushing to get as many projects completed for release before they had any kind of prolonged work stoppages. Critics, though, were a little less kind about Action Jackson than maybe the the movie-going public. Critics thought that there was a lot of violence, maybe excessively so. Silver and others, though, were very defensive about this argument because they intentionally created Action Jackson as larger than life. They saw it as kind of an over-the-top cartoon They were not going for realistic portrayals. They argued that people were going to the theater to see great action. They wanted a few yucks. They wanted beautiful actors. And audiences know that what they're seeing is all in fun, and they would not be bothered by this violence. It was so over the top that they weren't going to be taking it seriously, although the critics still treated that as a negative. Action Jackson, though, would go down and would be seen for many, many years as a failed attempt to try to create this new blockbuster franchise to try to piggyback on the lucrative Beverly Hills Cop formula of movies. They gave us here an African-American loose cannon Detroit cop, R-rated levels of violence, a lot of smirk-tinged humor, a very popular soundtrack, crazy stunts galore, very much in the Beverly Hills Cop vein. There were talks still for a follow-up, And there was a writer assigned to do a follow-up to Action Jackson at one point, but the sequel never did manifest because Lorimar, as a studio, they sold to Sony and they sold their film catalog to Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers had their own action hero star, Steven Seagal. As far as what I think about Action Jackson, I think Carl Weathers, I love Carl Weathers. I, I really think that he definitely was poised to be a big action movie star. He certainly is a better actor than a lot of your leading men in action movies. And he here is a very likable, very formidable presence. He has debonair looks, considerable brawn. He has all of the muscles that you would want. Unfortunately, in terms of trying to make a Beverly Hills Cop-type film, whereas Eddie Murphy could improvise his way around terrible dialogue for memorable scenes... Carl Weathers, 
might be a good actor, but he's not a comedian. He's not somebody who could riff. He's not into skit comedies. He's really not somebody who's going to elevate some of the weaknesses in a screenplay that needed a little bit more revision into something completely golden like Eddie Murphy could. Now, Vanity happens to be great eye candy. She's a beautiful woman, but she also is typically a very weak actress. In fact, she received a Worst Actress Razzie nomination for her portrayal as Sydney here. And unfortunately, she's even a worse singer than she is an actress. So that could be forgiven, though, if romantic sparks fly between her and Carl Weathers, but they don't. And they don't even try to have a romance with Sharon Stone, who's mostly forgettable as Della Plain's unbelievably naive wife. Now, Sharon Stone would later become a very good actress, especially in the 1990s, but definitely was a throwaway part here. Craig T. Nelson, he happens to look very tall, very beefy, enough to make a formidable foil for Carl Weathers, but I don't think that Nelson has the right charisma to seem like anything more than a slickly dressed thug. And meanwhile, there's a plethora of cartoonish side characters that are relegated to mild comic relief roles before coming out for the climax. But I think what hampers the film is not the cast. In fact, I don't even think the screenplay is bad per se, even though it might have needed a little bit more polish. I think the actors are all appealing on certain levels. But what really hampers Action Jackson from being kind of a really solid A-list action vehicle isn't maintaining a consistent tone. Now, now some of them can be relegated to the script needing more work, but a lot of it is also the direction. And while the script might alternate wildly between cheeky cop comedy and this ultra-violent action thriller, it doesn't have the comic writing to entertain between the, between the action moments as well as Beverly Hills Cop did. But really, I think Baxley's direction doesn't build the suspense in the way that you want suspense to be built in a thriller. Action Jackson still has a lowbrow wit about it. It does have a very likable action star, gorgeous actresses. These are all assets, a lot of assets actually, in Action Jackson. It has a very solid pop soundtrack. And despite what I said about Vanity's vocal limitations, I think her Jesse Johnson produced songs are very catchy. I own the soundtrack specifically for those songs. And actually own Vanity's albums. I think her singing is sometimes wince-inducing, but I like the production that she has on her records. The -the over-the-top stunt work is definitely an asset. I mean, Baxley, you know, cut his teeth with doing stunt work. So, you know, you, you like the stunts when they do occur. But I do think the inherent silliness of the film, especially when murders and drug abuse and torture is going on, it does make for an unsettling tone. So it's sometimes hard to know when to laugh or when to wince. And I think that's why critics had a a problem with the film. It was like, why am I finding this funny? Somebody's almost getting castrated here. I think it's entertaining in that the the bar is kind of set low because it's a low-budget film. But even with its slapdash nature, there's still something very fun about Action Jackson. So kind of a guilty pleasure for me. It's a far cry from Beverly Hills Cop. That is a fantastic action comedy from the 1980s. But at the same time, I actually like Action Jackson better than I did Beverly Hills Cop 2. So by comparison to that, I actually like Action Jackson for what it's trying to achieve. It's passably entertainment. It's more of a B-movie action comedy than an A-list one. So I think that it's going to appeal more to audiences who know that it's kind of a bad action flick going in. They weren't trying to create a good action vehicle here. They were just trying to create a fun one. And I think 
along those lines, if you want just a fun time, not necessarily to think that this is a good movie, you will get that here. So Action Jackson, I will give two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars on my scale means that it had the tools, it had the talent to be something more, something I could recommend to most people. But what it's lacking here is that additional work on the screenplay to tighten things up. But I also think the combination of Craig Baxley's lack of suspense and the way that he builds up those action sequences and also the low-budget nature of the film. They weren't able to really pay for a lot of what they were wanting to achieve with this film. Kind of relegates it to a an entertaining, but ultimately it falls short as kind of like a true classic of the 1980s. So two and a half stars is the best I can give Action Jackson, even though I've watched it many times over the years. And I really like the music and the soundtrack, and I love Carl Weathers. Good to see him in The Mandalorian these days. If you have your own thoughts about Action Jackson that you want to impart, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. By the way, this entire episode, I dedicate to Orethia, who for many, many years, in fact, when I first talked to her many years ago, she asked, when am I going to do Action Jackson? So I hope that you are content with what you heard today, even though I only gave it two and a half stars out of four. As far as what I'm going to be doing next week, where I'm going to do a film that's completely different in many respects to this film, except it does have a cop who does get framed for murder. And it does star Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I did mention earlier. It came out uh, just maybe three months before Action Jackson came out in theaters. A science fiction actioner called The Running Man. And that will be the film I cover on the next episode. So if you haven't seen The Running Man or if you haven't seen it for a long time, I definitely do recommend checking that out before I get into the body of the review for next time. But until then, thank you, everyone, for listening and joining me as we continue to travel around the world in 80s movies.